This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we're going to talk about the power of purpose, transforming community health through leadership of the heart. We're joined this week by Mikhail Moore. If you don't know Mikhail, well, this is someone that you definitely need to know. Mikhail is a nationally recognized health executive with 25 years of experience impacting communities through forward thinking, collaboration, and leadership. She's a thought leader in value-based care. Mikhail Moore is someone that is moving healthcare to health. I mean, she's been someone that's been nationally recognized. She's been on Modern Healthcare's Top 25 Women Leaders list. She's also served in national engagements, serving on the American Hospital Association's Population and Community Health Advisory Committee. She's a founding steering committee member of the National Alliance to Impact Social Determinants of Health. Mikkel also serves her local community through board service on the United Way of Salt Lake, Envision Utah, Shelter of the Homeless. She's a pet therapy volunteer. I mean, this is someone that's really serving with a passion. She wants to make communities better, and that all comes down to health. And it and it's all about also bringing visibility to the underserved in our communities. And we have to do that in the boardroom, and we have to be personally committed to seeking opportunities where we can make an impact as a healthcare leader. And that's exactly what Mikkel has done in her career. And I'm excited to share that with you um, this week in this interview. It's, you know, you're going to learn so much about how to address disparities clinically to broaden the scope to address social determinants of health through equity and impact investments and community partnerships. I mean, Mikkel is such a strong advocate for these strategies and the power to strengthen organizational performance and and really impact the most vulnerable in our communities. So it's, again, such an honor to, to bring you this content week in and week out. Uh, please make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at racetovalue.org forward slash newsletter so you don't miss out on future episodes. And now let's go ahead and hear from Mikkel Moore as she joins us this week on the Race to Value. Mikkel, welcome to the Race to Value. I am ecstatic to have you on the show. I've been wanting to have you as a guest for quite some time. So welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Eric. I'm excited to be here and appreciate the invitation. Well, Mikkel, as we start our conversation today, I'd love to learn more about how your worldview has shaped your career journey over the last 25 plus years. As a nationally recognized health executive, you've become highly regarded as a leader who knows the value of moving healthcare to health. And your expansive thinking goes way beyond the ways health systems can directly address disparities to broaden the scope of care delivery. I mean, you're, you're in your work, you've been addressing determinants of health through equity, impact investments, ESG factors. And I, as I understand for you, this is a personal calling and you're Authentic voice as a leader has elevated the visibility of underserved communities in the boardroom. And having this authentic voice and leadership must have led you to embrace your true self, you know, when you're leading with integrity and honesty and transparency and you're advocating for the underserved. And I know that's easier said than done in the healthcare setting. And so I wanted to, you know, start our conversation around that. I mean, a lot of our listeners are out there and maybe they're trying to get away from this dominant fee-for-service world of healthcare. And, and maybe also a lot of our leaders are out there are women. And, you know, we're 
still, I, I think, in a male-dominated business and political environment, and it can really be at you know difficult at times to be heard and trusted. So, you know, when, when I hear about you advocating for the underserved and standing up for what you believe in, I'm fascinated by how you've been able to accomplish that when the odds maybe were against you and your voice may not have been heard in the same way as the voices of, of perhaps the men in the room. So, um, Mikkel, you know, uh, can you walk us through your leadership journey as a crusader for the underserved and the marginalized patient populations? And what lessons can you share with our listeners about the importance of authenticity and leadership when it comes to contributing your voice to matters of the heart? And what can women leaders learn from your experiences as they forge their own leadership path in value-based care? I don't think I've ever thought of myself as a crusader. And and when I, and I think about well, why, you know, I've never really sought to actually be an advocate first and foremost for underserved or margin, marginalized patient populations. And certainly not with the mindset of conquering on their behalf. And, and I guess maybe that gets to my leadership journey. I always wanted to be a part of healthcare. I mean, and I don't know why I did not grow up in a healthcare dominated family, but I wanted to be a part of making the world a better place and thought about that globally sometimes as a kid, but also was a pretty practical person. And healthcare was a practical way that I could be involved in making the world a better place, my community a better place. And the more I learned about healthcare by working in it, I learned how much was wrong with our healthcare system. And it was that journey that led me eventually to really recognizing how broken it was for some people compared to others in our country. And that resolving those disparities was imperative as a healthcare leader to addressing the issues. And, and so what I mean by that is, I think even as I was entering my career in the late 90s, um, at the time, the Clintons were recognizing what was wrong with healthcare and trying to fix it in their own way. And I had the opportunity to intern at the Mayo Clinic, which I thought must be the pinnacle of defining how quality healthcare could be delivered. And absolutely, Mayo is a phenomenal system and it has its niche and it serves a certain population of people in our country, but it was not going to be the path to me learning how to fix the system. So I moved from there to a health plan that was owned by a couple of provider systems and they were trying to make a play at integrated healthcare for the purpose of improving affordability and, and quality. And I really thought that was the key. Uh, health plans had the leverage point as the purchasers on behalf of employers and individuals or public government entities to drive the improvement they wanted to see. But then we had significant managed care backlash, which put all of that improvement in jeopardy. So then I went to Intermountain Healthcare and found an organization that was really trying to integrate these approaches and design a consumer and provider partnered approach to improving healthcare. And hospitals were the vehicle by which they were trying to do that care redesign. So I worked in hospital leadership and I really thought that as a hospital CEO, I was maybe a crusader. I never thought of myself that way, but an advocate certainly for improving what was wrong in our system, which at the time I defined as variability in the care that we were delivering and waste overutilization. And so our focus was really on how do we deliver the right care to the right patient at the right time and nothing that was actually not needed because that would be wrong care. And that was the core work that I was a part of leading as a hospital leader and eventually as a hospital CEO. But my kind of pinnacle job in hospital leadership was as CEO of LDS Hospital, which was a super cool job. I was the CEO at the time when the hospital was the flagship of the Intermountain system and planning to become a community hospital. And that required me to listen to what did our community want the hospital to be in the future? What did physicians want it to be? What did our leaders and caregivers want it to be? And that process of listening really shaped the way I thought about the people that we were serving in a different way than I ever had listened to that before. 
And then as the hospital changed, I could see the patients that we weren't serving as well because the emphasis had always been on sick care, on trauma, highly complex cases like transplant or NICU, level three NICU stays, et cetera. The things that were everyday failures of the health system weren't bright, shiny objects that I paid much attention to as a hospital administrator until uh, it became more of the core of the work we were doing there. And I realized how even resolving the variability in the care that we were delivering and focusing on delivering the right care to the right patient at the right time still produced disparities for reasons that weren't readily apparent. And this is when I really began to see the gaps, the much bigger gaps in health outcomes that those who were experiencing poverty, homelessness, or other non-majority experiences in life were, were really exacerbated. And that's what launched me. So um, it, it certainly wasn't something that I got to by design, but out of necessity. If we want to be health leaders who are making healthcare better or improving health of our country, we have to be champions for addressing the gaps in the experience of those who are underserved or marginalized in our communities. Well, Mikkel, it's an inspiring story. And, you know, I, and I think it it does harken back to the the reason why leaders in healthcare go into the role in the first place. I mean, they really want to tap into that, that altruistic purpose behind leading and reimagining healthcare delivery. And it's so inherently difficult in a predominantly fee-for-service model. And your leadership journey has been really inspiring in terms of your advocacy and the work that you've done for underserved populations. Most recently, you've served as the Senior Vice President and Chief Community Health Officer for Intermountain. You really became widely known for your active involvement in addressing health disparities in underserved communities. And as I understand, a major aspect of this of that work was establishing partnerships with community organizations and local governments and other stakeholders to collaborate on addressing social determinants of health and improving access to care. And those partnerships were shown to, to really support targeted interventions and the provision of new resources to address the unique health needs of the underserved populations in Utah. And building those effective partnerships and with community organizations is so challenging in healthcare for a multitude of reasons. I mean, there's so often so many misaligned goals and priorities between community organizations and the health systems and that divergence can create these challenges and aligning strategies and finding common ground and also you know just CBOs in general are often resource constrained i mean the health systems are too don't get me wrong but you know these CBOs i mean they rely on grants and donations to fund their programs and services and that can often hinder their collaboration if they're required to uh, provide some financial support to effectively partner. And there's also so many compliance challenges, and especially when it comes to data sharing and patient privacy. And a health system also has to overcome the challenges of information sharing and interoperability to ensure that data compatibility for successful partnerships so you can address SDOH. I mean, there's a lot to, to cover there, but it really seems like in your role, you've been able to contend with the challenges of bridging cultural differences to ensure open communication and shared decision-making and those types of partnerships. So, Mikkel, I wanted to ask you, just with your experience and community collaborations, could you describe how you were able to build effective partnerships with community organizations? And how were you able to overcome the, the all those various challenges to create a foundation for collaboration that leverages the strengths of all the parties involved to improve health outcomes and address social determinants of health uh, for the underserved? Relationship building comes best for me it, in any relationship. I think when I'm curious, when I'm a good listener, when I do my best to really understand what's important to someone else um, and, and maybe what it feels like to be them, but also maybe to share, you know, when, whenever you're building a relationship, I think it's important to share a little of yourself and create a connection human to human. And so in, in many of the uh, community partnerships that I sought to address, it was working with organizations who worked with 
low-income individuals, uh, people who were experiencing homelessness or substance use disorder. Um, some of the most complex, tough issues our communities are facing. And so it was really important for me as the chief community health officer at Intermountain to take off my black suit I wore to the corporate office and uh, get out in the field and really get to know people human to human and to try to understand what issues the, the CBOs were working to address and those they served, whether that was going out on outreach with 4th Street Clinic, the homeless healthcare provider, or sitting at the table with all of the outpatient providers of behavioral health and social detox that we wanted to partner with to help increase access to behavioral health services. We really had to get to know each other and uh, by by watching them in their work and maybe opening up and sharing a little bit about my own struggles that I've encountered in my own family around substance use and addiction, we're able to establish relationships people to people. And then you have to really go about building a partnership that has shared objectives. And so there's a couple of partnerships that I'm really proud to have built in collaboration with many others around a behavioral health network or building a model for addressing the social determinants of health in collaboration with healthcare outcomes. And in, in both of those scenarios, I work to apply with my team the principles of collective impact of developing together with partners, a definition of what problem we thought was worth solving and where we had energy and willingness to solve it. And then defining together, what does success actually look like? And then what do we think we need to do to get there? And I, I think that often we don't spend enough time really understanding the problem and going a layer deeper than a layer deeper than a layer deeper to really understand what issues get in the way. And without that, we can't even then define what success looks like. So in the example, and, and you describe many of the barriers that get in the way with data sharing or interoperability or other things, I'll, I'll use the example of creating an alliance to address the determinants of health. We had we had a recognition that, of course, someone's ability to address their housing insecurity or nutritional needs or even their ability to get a job would get in the way of them being able to manage their diabetes. We all in intuitively understand that these non-medical issues are contributing to someone's health outcomes, but what to do about it was complicated. The barriers to sharing data were tricky, but we could agree that People were using the emergency department for things that didn't require the medical expertise of the team assembled in the emergency department. Often people were using the emergency department because of a lack of housing or because of not having a job or loneliness. And that if we could solve for some of those non-medical needs in other ways prior to the medical crisis precipitating or whether there or just preemptively before they go to the emergency room, we would improve health for the people that we were serving, at least the experience of people we were serving, and we'd reduce inappropriate or non-medically necessary emergency department use. And so, and the community partners that we worked with in uh, federally qualified health centers, schools, mental health clinics, food providers in the community or United Ways, others who were a part of filling in gaps, all agreed that in order to do that together, there needed to be a system for communicating that was first and foremost driven by what the patient wanted or the person wanted in terms of communication. It couldn't go against their wishes. It couldn't violate their privacy, but it needed to foster communication amongst the partners that a person wanted to be working together and that there needed to be some gaps that could be filled where there might not be grant funding or a uh, an approved service for Medicaid to be providing, et cetera. So just with those two ideas of data sharing with the permission of the patient or person and with a little bit of funds that could fill in the gaps for some of the things that didn't have grant funding, 
we were off to the races in terms of trying to just do whatever necessary to try to solve for those needs before someone got to the emergency department. And that began the work of the Alliance, which has now continued to morph and develop into lots of different things around solving for the gaps that exist and for working together. But it all comes out of really building a relationship first, some trust of people, and then defining what what we want to solve together. Well, Mikkel, it's great. We're exceptional leadership and navigating some of the challenges and community partnerships to address social determinants of health. And, you know, as we're talking about all these important challenges in our communities, I wanted to engage you on this underlying issue of racism in our society. And I know this is a really uncomfortable question to have in, in healthcare. And it seems like now, uh, however, we're, we're coming to terms with the fact that we are recognizing that for patients of color, you know, inequities and in health outcomes aren't due to just location, education, or, or income. I mean, it's all also at times due to the healthcare professionals' cognitive biases. And, you know, I mean, we've seen Decades of clinical studies that have examined only white male bodies. There's often a lack of understanding about social determinants of biological illnesses. The causes of health inequities for people of color are multifactorial, but racism is really a main contributing factor because it creates the variations in treatment and this lack of trust in minoritized communities. And although health inequities within communities of color have persisted for hundreds of years, it does seem like we're just waking up to the problem. I mean, it, you know, it, it we're, we're now, uh, you know, having these important conversations, but it took a, a global pandemic and a social justice movement for us to really, you know, start engaging meaningfully and, you know, on addressing some of these uh, systemic issues in healthcare and institutional racism. And I wanted to quote you from an interview that you gave during the pandemic, uh, and it was discussing Intermountain's commitment to health equity. And you said as follows, as we begin to label the social determinants of health, Three or four years ago as a major focus, we knew that racism was one of those determinants of health, but we didn't feel empowered to boldly call it out because we didn't understand it as well as we do now. And we still have a lot to learn, but we also needed to meet our community, our leaders where we were. So, Mikkel, I mean, with all this elevated awareness of institutional racism. I know you and other leaders are now out there committing to the long road ahead and actively engaging in anti-racist medical work and rather than this short-term reactionary work. So I wanted to just ask you if you could provide your perspective on racism in and of itself as a social determinant of health and and how should the health leaders that are listening to this interview look to become more actively involved in anti-racism and healthcare as they position uh, to align that movement to the broader goals of value-based care in our country? So I think it's important to unpack some of the terminology that we're using because sometimes the words we use uh, turn us off from listening, I guess, to the other person in a conversation. And Often when we're talking about social determinants of health, we're really talking about the non-medical social needs of a patient in that then and there moment. And those are really real issues. But, but way before that, there's all these social factors that are influencing someone's health condition at a point in time, uh, where they were born, how they were raised, what opportunity they had for health as an early child. And this very much then plays into how we should be thinking as health leaders about health equity and racism. I remember that quote, actually, as you described it and or, or read it there. And it is really interesting. I think since that moment at LDS Hospital, when I realized that disparities were really at play in my own hospital under my leadership, I began the work of health equity. And, and for me, that meant really digging deep to understand the variability in health outcomes that could be attributed to any variation in the care we were providing as a health system, but also how patients presented to us. What, what was happening for them beyond what we could see that should factor into the individual care that we should be delivering to each patient? 
And I think that's really important for us to acknowledge as health leaders. Often the racism or the, the inequities that we deliver are not, uh, they're at a subconscious level. And it's our accountability to identify those disparities and build systems that prevent the disparity from occurring. So for example, you know, we know that um, enrollment in clinical studies to study the future way we deliver care um, is really important. And we've been enrolling white men much more so than any other demographic in clinical research trials. So it is our responsibility as the caregivers who are offering studies to our patients, even thinking about how we approach and enroll, how we make someone feel safe to be enrolled in a study, it is absolutely our priority. We have to make it a priority to enroll in ways that represent the demographics of our communities. Otherwise, we're not getting results that are helpful to the ongoing treatment and care design. We also have the same responsibility to think about how are we messaging about preventive strategies, whether it's suicide awareness and mental health awareness, or just how to recognize signs and symptoms of a stroke. If those messages are only understood by a white English speaking population, we are leaving behind a lot of our community um, and, and they can't even show up to access healthcare the same way that those who receive those messages can. Similar to you know, whom are we encouraging to breastfeed when we are working with a new mom and baby in a hospital? We know those rates vary. And I think in most cases, it's not because we have caregivers who are intentionally racist. It's subconscious, it's not intentional. Nonetheless, the outcome is the same. And of course, we also have conscious bias. We have intentional disparity but that isn't the majority of what's happening out there. And as health leaders, I think we have to be accountable to address both. We have to create systems that protect our implicit bias from showing up as a disparity for those we're serving. And then we have to stand up to people who are leading with conscious bias or not willing to understand their subconscious bias and address it. And so, you know, as I think about our responsibility as healthcare leaders, it's about building those systems and care delivery, but it's modeling it in all of the systems we use to run our health systems themselves. Our health systems hire people, give job opportunities to construction companies or suppliers opportunities. We have contracts. Um, we are deciding who we invest our assets with. In any of those behaviors, we have to be thinking about equity and ensuring that we're designing systems that correct for the unintentional bias we all have as human beings, it's a part of our makeup, and redesign those systems um, in ways that support all of us in learning how to recognize that and resolve it. Well, Mikkel, it's a great signal for transformation that leaders like you are now realizing the disparities that are built into the design of the current healthcare system. I mean, it seems like we're really paying attention to the evidence that's out there. And I mean, we're now recognizing that people of color all too often do receive less care or even worse care than than other groups in our society. And, you know, as I think about these manifestations of institutional racism, it, it you know, I, I would agree it really comes down to the overcoming the communication barriers and the that subconscious uh, stereotyping that often perpetuates inequities and in care outcomes. And I wanted to also ask you about this transition to culturally competent care in terms of the staffing in the care delivery model. I mean, as we're moving to value-based care with health systems establishing more meaningful partnerships with communities, it's super critical that we have well-trained, qualified, and more culturally competent healthcare workers that actually mirror the diverse population that's being served. I mean, with someone on a, on the care team that has that shared lived experience and the personalized understanding of the challenges that uh, people of color and low-income communities have, 
seems like important information can be conveyed when when there's that cultural alignment. And health systems like Intermountain and others that we've talked about on this podcast previously are deploying these teams of community health workers. They're looking to bridge that communication gap between the health systems and the underserved communities. And you know, CHWs in particular, I know, are really able to explain the complicated health information to patients in a culturally appropriate way in terms of their own language. And additionally, health system efforts to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion of the entire workforce cannot be overstated in the provision of culturally competent care. So, Mikkel, I wanted to ask you if you could discuss what you've done as a community health leader to improve the cultural competence of care teams and what role can community partnerships play in enhancing communication effectiveness to engender improved patient activation and, and overall trust with the healthcare system? Well, I think that this is a journey that we're going to be on for a long time. And unfortunately, our communities are maybe more divided than ever uh, in the United States, given the social disconnect that we've had in, in recent years. And health systems have such an important opportunity and responsibility to be a part of changing that. Um, because we touch nearly every life in, in our communities at some point, and we're a major employer in every community without exception, typically. And so a few things that I, you know, I, I think that we have to be thinking of explicit training we provide to our employees in a, as a health system. And um, I love, there's a, an organization that I've worked with for years and years called Circles that gives people the opportunity to really experience what it's like to live in intergenerational poverty or more than three generations of, of poverty or public assistance by uh, in an experiential way. I think that type of training is really critical in some positions in healthcare, particularly those that are facilitating access to financial assistance, providing social work, that level of really deep connection to patients all the time about addressing their, their needs. And that's not feasible for all people in a large health system. Engaging leaders in one way and providing infrastructure kind of support or training to all caregivers in a health system is, is equally important. And I have found getting leaders on boards with the community organizations that are most connected to a, the community that an organization serves just pays off in multiple ways. First of all, leaders get the opportunity to sit with, usually as peer board members, to those with lived experience who are trying to, for whom the organization or CBO is trying to benefit. And that creates such a great learning environment for health system leaders to operate in that way. And then they get to sit in that seat of thinking about what can their own system do to help this CBO or to help this population, this community. And by sitting there, they want to help. Of course they do. So they begin to then activate others inside of their health system to get involved. And then I think a third way is to really support, as a healthcare leader, we can support our teams to understand when they're asking the question, why? I'll use the example of why are our patients that show up with stroke symptoms, even though we provide the same care, regardless of color, or uh, language spoken, why are the outcomes so different, the long-term outcomes? Well, it's because, you know, we have to peel back that onion. Well, the care we're delivering in the emergency department's the same, but they're arriving at a later point in the onset of symptoms. Well, why is that? Well, there's a delay in care in some cultures. Well, why is that? It's because we're not recognizing the signs and symptoms of stroke, or there's fear of coming to an emergency department, or there's just value and manage it yourself. Whatever the case may be, you have to keep peeling that back and supporting our clinical teams as leaders by saying, we'd be happy to connect a CBO who could do this research for you or in collaboration with you to listen to the community that's experiencing the disparity, we can create that connection as community health leaders or as healthcare leaders to allow our clinical teams to do what they do best 
but listen to the people with lived experience. And that type of competence creation around a problem to be solved is so much more valuable than trying to teach all employees in a large health system about the cultural norms of every potential culture they might encounter, which is just not ever possible. And then lastly, that leads me to, well, then what education do we provide to all of our caregivers, all of our employees? And it's that ability to really recognize our inherent bias and to listen, sit across someone from someone else and really listen and be present without judgment to understand and learn about another human being. And that improves our ability to be a colleague, to be a parent, to be a healthcare worker, uh, or to be a problem solver when we recognize a health disparity exists. Well, Mikkel, uh, one other aspect of care delivery that I, that really touches me at the human level is uh, uh, behavioral health. I mean, it's such a crisis right now in our country where you know we see one out of five Americans, about fifty-one million people that are suffering from a behavioral health condition. And earlier you mentioned some of the work that you had done, and I'd love to get more in depth into that. I mean, we have such a challenge right now. I mean, there's uh, 20 million people uh, in our country uh, estimated to have substance use disorder. About 4% of the population is having suicidal thoughts uh, You know, with, within the, the last year. We have so many of uh, people that are unpaid caregivers and minority populations that are are feeling this distress of mental health and substance abuse issues. And, you know, we often see that upwards of 70% of primary care appointments include problems with significant psychosocial issues, but less than half of those primary care patients ever receive any mental health treatment at all. And um, you wrote an editorial piece for Healthcare Dive last year, and I wanted to read something that stuck with me. You said, you know, I recognize this is not a priority for many communities nationwide, but healthcare systems in these communities have the power to catalyze change. Our health system leaders should prioritize the expansion of behavioral health services for all Americans. I mean, we can achieve this by improving access to behavioral health services, customizing how we provide behavioral health care, especially those with higher risks, and leveraging partnerships to create new tools to offer care. And as healthcare leaders, our goal is to make health behavioral health care a convenient, routine, everyday part of one's life so that people can reach their fullest potential and most importantly find hope. And that's where the you know hope is really, you know, what moves me at, at the human level. I mean, we have to find ways to ameliorate the suffering that's uh, being had on you know in mental health that seemingly the the healthcare uh, system just isn't able to address effectively so I wanted to ask you Mikhail if you could speak more in depth about this importance of community mental health awareness and and how to get improved accessibility and also for those healthcare leaders out there that are listening to this interview I mean how can they make an impact here where there's such a dire shortage of behavioral health specialists to address those patients in need this is such an overwhelming need. When we look at those numbers that you just listed, it feels daunting. And I think often health systems feel so overwhelmed. It feels like, uh, you know, this has to be something that the state or the federal government steps in to address. And there's, there's only so much we can do. And, you know, this is the type of pandemic that's going to take all of us thinking in lots of different ways in order to get to a different outcome. And uh, I do think that it lends itself very much to that community health approach to addressing an issue. What can we do? You know, if complex problems like this require really thinking about how we solve this at multiple levels. And I love, in one, in some ways, the pandemic, the, the COVID pandemic created the ability for us to talk more openly about what was happening in the mental health pandemic. It wasn't new because of COVID. It was, it was the number one issue prior to the COVID pandemic. And then it became more visible, just like racism did in, in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And I think that that 
is giving us the ability to support dinner table access to care. And, and what I mean by that is if we can all get better as human beings in supporting one another and talking about our mental health in recognizing how important it is to um, have social support, utilize, use substances responsibly, take care of our mental health proactively, exercise for mental health, have social connection for mental health, not spend too much time in our devices or in uh, non-real environments in order to care for our mental health and be talking about this at the dinner table, in the workplace, in school, in all places. We are going to do a better job as a society just creating the health that we all want. So that's an access point we can all be a part of. And then we need to make sure that we're not closing off access in some of the places where it's popping up as needed most. Um, our school and medical system infrastructure needs to be trained and uh, supported in being able to offer this type of support. We can't expect that teachers trained 20 years ago or primary care physicians trained 20 years ago know how to support their patients or their students in how to have healthy mental health, just proactively support it, much less prescribe or connect people to resources that are more complex. And we've got to support that infrastructure in doing so. And we have to make sure we don't cause harm, which our criminal justice system often isn't supported in recognizing the signs of mental health, mental illness when it's presenting in a way that could be confused as criminal behavior. And we need to support our criminal justice system and being able to recognize and respond with compassion and, and access to treatment instead of criminalizing that behavior and putting someone in jail or taking someone to, to jail. Um, so we, we have to look at that as well. And then lastly, we get to how do we really ensure that we are increasing access to outpatient therapy, acute response, and other things, which is core to the health system's responsibility to ensuring that we're, in we're increasing the capacity for training. Social workers need more places to do clinical rotations right now, so do psychologists, psychiatrists. And then we need more slots for their training. Uh, but the schools can't open slots unless health systems are enabling a place for that clinical shadowing. And then lastly, we need to model this in the way that we run our health systems. Again, we're the largest employer. We can create this beautiful continuum of access and preventive care for our own employees and their families and model that dinner table type of access by normalizing conversations like this in the workplace and training our leaders and our employees to be comfortable in this space. So we have a lot of opportunities to influence this as health system leaders. And it's not just around creating traditional acute care access for more behavioral health beds. Well, Mikhail, I, I certainly share in your optimism. I know the statistics are, are are grim at the moment, but we are now normalizing the conversation. There's more societal awareness of uh, the behavioral health challenges in our communities. And, you know, I would have to think that, you know, the healthcare industry can coalesce around this immense problem, the pandemic, if you will, of, of mental health and and really address the this uh, crisis. Um, there, there's another aspect of health equity that I, I don't think gets as much attention. And I wanted to ask you about that as well. And that's maternal health. I mean, when it comes to maternal health, just like other aspects of health, the flawed economics of our fee-for-service system disproportionately impact minoritized populations. I mean, we've seen how our healthcare industry has clearly misaligned financial incentives, for example, that favor C-sections over vaginal births. And since 1970, we've seen a 500% increase in C-sections over vaginal deliveries with the rate of C-sections among uh, African Americans being much higher than the general population, and these procedures introduce the potential for complications. It's just like any other surgery, you know, where you could have 
organ injury or hemorrhage or an infection. And those complications are, you know, three times more likely to happen with a C-section versus vaginal delivery. And there's all obviously a cost advantage for hospitals and providing those procedures because in fee-for-service, the reimbursement is so much higher for a C-section than a vaginal delivery. But as I understand, as a health leader, you've really been committed to community outreach programs that raise awareness around maternal health issues, particularly among vulnerable populations. And those programs uh, can do so much to promote health literacy and empower expectant mothers to make informed decisions about their care. So, uh, Mikkel, could you discuss what the implications are for improved maternity services and patient engagement in a community health model? And also, do you think value-based payment will put our healthcare system on a path to emphasize more team-based approaches to maternal care in the long term? So I think, you know, if we think about what contributes to maternal health outcomes, we all can understand it intuitively that the sooner a woman receives care or is encouraged to adopt healthy behaviors, earlier in the pregnancy or pre-pregnancy or uh, even pre-contemplating pregnancy, the better the outcome for mother and baby, the least likely for a C-section, which introduces further risk for mother and baby, of course, as we know, drives up cost and, and lots of other things. And so the model, as you pointed out so well, does not reward us as health systems intervening at the point that has the most impact for the health outcome of the mother or the baby. We're, we're just fine to be uh, connecting with mom and baby late in second trimester, third trimester, and it doesn't matter, theoretically, if uh, that, that results in needing to perform a C-section and baby going to the NICU. The hospital gets paid more, it's even more profitable, um, all kinds of really sad incentives. But we know that medically speaking, it's far better for a woman to, first of all, be in charge of when she gets pregnant. So having access to family planning, um, whether that's education or birth control or both um, is really important so that she can ensure that she has the best health behaviors for raising a healthy baby in utero and a stable environment to bring that baby home to when the baby is born. So that early choice is really important. So is having access to early prenatal care to ensure uh, good health and nutrition, but also identification of early complications, which can um, be intervened on and, and prevent poor outcomes. And then of course, managing that late stage pregnancy for a healthy delivery with the most reduced likelihood then of a C-section. All of those factors matter. So in order for a value-based payment model to be a part of solving that for that, we have to have the right incentives. And again, here's an opportunity where the words we're using mean different things to different people. And a value-based payment model in order to drive the right outcome in maternal health has to ensure that the value accrues to the patient and the family. And I think that our payer systems are uh, designed with the idea, well, that if there's value accruing to the payer, hopefully that means it's a better product for the patient and the family. But you and I both know, Eric, there's a lot of people between the patient and the baby in this case and that payer. Um, there's providers, there's an employer purchaser or a government purchaser and others who are trying to design systems that create the right alignment, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, we still have a system that does not truly create the incentives. And yet I think of uh, a, all of our major health systems in the country even if they're in a predominant fee-for-service model, have a lot of employees who are having babies every year. And most are self-insured. And they have the opportunity to identify and support their own employees in having access to family planning, access to encouraged, uh, you know, they could use community health workers and promotoras and others to connect in a real person-centered way to ensure that someone understands 
the health behaviors that are going to create and facilitate a healthy pregnancy, create ease of access to early prenatal care, time for that at work. Um, without having to take time off to get a prenatal visit, we can do things even with where we have the financial incentive all built in to change those outcomes and let that be a learning leading laboratory for redesigning Medicaid within our state to foster this type of, of care, which many states are doing now. I love seeing how many states have adopted the continuous eligibility for someone uh, postpartum. Um, and other things that are going to really help shift the incentives and the uh, access points for women to have care earlier in a really natural way. So uh, I think we have to be a part of creating the value-based system that we need in order to produce health instead of just having profitable health care. Well, Mikkel, as we're thinking about community health and health equity and this transition to value-based care, you know, there's this concept of being an anchor institution and what that can mean for community health. I mean, it's really the culmination of everything that we've talked about on the podcast so far. I mean, in the context of both community health and economic development, hospitals and health systems can really fulfill their true promise to the communities that they serve. I mean, in a fee-for-service environment, uh, you're you're often seeing a hospital as obviously one of the biggest drivers of employment. It's 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 an economic force to to be reckoned with. But fee for service healthcare, it's a this powerful engine economically for job creation, but it doesn't necessarily improve community health in the long run. And we have to change the expectations. Uh, you know, as as you were saying earlier, on what we expect of anchor institutions in the healthcare setting, and how do we build this convergence between both uh, economic development and community health, where the population health goals for wellness and equity are valued just as much as the economic development goals themselves. As I understand it, during your tenure at Intermountain, this idea of becoming an anchor institution as a vector to drive improvements and social determinants of health was a central strategy. So I wanted to ask you if you could discuss your experience as a leader in developing an anchor institution for community health and how can that strategy align with a community partnership strategy to best utilize public assets for public good? You know, I think the concept of doing both is something that my colleagues and I talked a lot about in healthcare, that we're often put in a position where we think we're in an either or situation where we can do the right thing for the patient or behave in a fiscally responsible way. Well, no, we really can't choose between those two things, right? We have to figure out how to do both. This idea of being an anchor institution is very much a do both type of mindset. If we're going to be speaking to, and, and in fact, enjoying a tax exemption because we have accepted the responsibility or chosen the responsibility of making our health, our communities healthier, uh, by being a community-based healthcare organization, then we should also be thinking about how our own behaviors as an economic driver or a contributor to the health conversation in our communities is also a factor in improving health. And it would actually be, I think, um, very disingenuous if we ever said we were doing either or. Oh, we can only focus on healthcare delivery. We can't also focus on how we're contributing to economic development in our communities. No, we know that economic health produces physical health. They are very closely correlated. So we have the responsibility to do both. And so what that means is we have to, and, and this is the journey we went on in, in, um, in my organization was to really say, all right, we're now very mature in our journey of trying to uh, improve the healthcare we're delivering and thinking about how we connect in community to do that. We still have a lot of work to do and that work will continue. But at the same time, we have assets that are invested uh, so that we have the ability at a later date to replace a hospital or build a new hospital in a growing part of our state. So those assets, we should be thoughtful about how they're invested because that's an economic driver. Similarly, we're employing 10,000 new people every year and who we hire 
and how we hire them, how we source those employees, what partnerships we have to identify talent, that all contributes to economic well-being and maybe to disparities in whether someone has access to a good job or not. We should be looking at that because that's going to produce health. Similarly, we buy a lot of goods. Intermountain Health spends $2 billion a year buying goods. Whom we buy from, whether that company is based in China or based in the Intermountain West, has direct impact on the economic vibrancy of our community. We always have to be cognizant of the total cost or total spend in a category, but we should be able to do both, particularly in some spend categories. So thinking in a do both mindset around how we get deliberate, it really takes investment. And we only, in healthcare, we're very good at setting goals, measuring how we're doing, and meeting goals. And so just as we set goals to get 100% of our patients who come to the emergency department having an acute MI, the medications or the intervention needed, we can set goals around taking 2% of our asset portfolio and ensuring that those assets are invested in the very communities that we're working in or ensuring that when we're hiring people, that we're equally connected to communities of color, uh, communities that have experienced previous incarceration for minor offenses, or a neurodiverse community that might not be able to apply for a job as readily as a non-neurodiverse community. Thinking in these kinds of measurable ways about the way we do our work is a do-both strategy that really creates the type of accountability that a model nonprofit health system should have if it wants to be known as really improving the health of our community, which is what we were established to do. Well, I couldn't say it better myself, Mikhail. I mean, improving the health of communities. I mean, that's really what it's about. I mean, I, I enjoyed our conversation so much today. I mean, we've had such a, a deep conversation on community health. There's one thing I haven't asked you about, and I, I thought it would be a good question just for your parting thoughts as we wrap up today. But we haven't talked in, in the context of community health about this impact of consumerism, uh, you know, in this evolution to uh, value-based care and population health and health equity. And it seems like the future of healthcare is going to be predicated on how savvy health systems can meet changing consumer lifestyles and preferences about health and wellness. So, Mikkel, could you leave us maybe with your parting thoughts on how we might want to start thinking about the transition to a more of a consumer-centric definition of uh, health and wellness that is used to replace maybe the what we don't understand about the word healthcare as a business i mean uh, i i mean where does lifestyle medicine and and dressing social determinants you know take us in terms of providing not just convenience and a digital front door but but you know relationships that really emphasize health and wellness and and how do we evolve you know from a consumer perspective to be more centered around the patient i'd love i'd love to get your parting thoughts on that as we uh uh close out our conversation today i think as as health system leaders we have to look to industries that have come before us in this shift towards a consumer centric view of their industry and Often we carry a heavy weight attached to us because we have been built out of a fee-for-service, acute care-oriented frame. And I think we have to partner with those who really understand a consumer point of view. When you really listen to what people want in life, in, in health, they're thinking about the way they move, their ability to learn or work or participate with family and friends, they're not often thinking in healthcare terms about their health, they're thinking about life. And at the point that a consumer shifts towards thinking about healthcare, we have already missed the opportunity to actually be working on health. So we really need to partner with those that think in a consumer-oriented mindset and 
build that continuum? What connects us from health and wellness into the delivery of healthcare? How do we connect further upstream before people are ever thinking of healthcare or when they're leaving healthcare and resuming life? Because um, those intersection points are relationships healthcare organizations don't have with people. We need to lean on those who do to learn from and develop those relationships with and not be afraid to not be all things to all people, but connect these dots together. Um, so, you know, just like community health is around collaboration and really listening to what do individuals need, this idea of really shifting to a consumer-centric model, I think will be um, driven through partnership and listening to what people need, where the people we're serving, what they need, not necessarily what we need to perpetuate the system we've created. Well, Mikkel, I have learned so much from our conversation today. I can't thank you enough for joining us this week on The Race to Value. You've had such a purposeful career as a healthcare leader and administrator. You've made impacts in the communities that you've served, and I, I can't wait to see uh, what's next as you uh, continue to serve others and creating a, an improved uh, and more innovative and reimagined healthcare delivery model for our country. Just want to thank you for your leadership and, and spending some time today just sharing some of, of your insights with our listeners. Well, thank you, Eric, and and thank you to the, all of uh, those of you at the Race to Value podcast. Uh, this journey is is worth taking, and there's much good work ahead of, for all of us to be doing. So thank you for the opportunity to be with you. 